0: Revelation chapter 1 verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin. That Jewish ruling council there in Jerusalem, and they were summarily commanded not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They answered by saying, Acts chapter 4 verse 19, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. John writes in the Revelation simply that. A testimony of Jesus even to all that he saw. We read in the second verse. John never stopped. He was testifying in the early days of the church. He testified throughout his life. And now he's testifying once again as an old man. Perhaps a hundred years old. He couldn't help but talk about what he saw. In his Gospel. The Gospel of John. It's simply about what John saw in his letters. Same thing. He never stopped his life. It was all about what he saw. In fact, if you keep your finger in Revelation and jump back just a couple of, of letters here to 1 John chapter 1, John said what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes. What we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life and the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also. That's John's mantra, if you will. I saw. I heard. I told. I shared. John's testimony was... An eyewitness account of all of the things that he saw. In his gospel, John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw his glory, John says. We saw it. Now, when John wrote his gospel, it was probably about 85 to 90 A.D., And he says, we saw his glory. He likely wrote the gospel before the revelation. So the question remains, when did John see his glory? Well, Peter and James and John saw Jesus' glory. On the Mount of Transfiguration, if you remember the story, you can read about it in Matthew 17. They went up on the mountain. Jesus became transfigured before them. He came into a glorified representation. They saw him in his glory. John was able to write, very truly, we saw his glory. But listen to this, and here's the precision of the word. Six days earlier, they were at a place called Caesarea Philippi. Banias is another name for it. And as they stood there near this massive rock... Peter made his inspired confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, well, that was an inspired statement because you couldn't come up with that on your own, Peter. But then Jesus made a very peculiar and specific prophetic statement. He said in Matthew 16.28, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. The specificity of the word is simply this. Some say, oh, well, by that, Jesus meant the transfiguration. Some won't die until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And six days later, they saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain, so He was talking about the transfiguration. But Jesus didn't say that. He didn't say, some won't die until they see Me in My glory. He said, some won't die until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Jesus never spoke a careless word. He simply said clearly, some are not going to taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His glory. Now, in the mid-90s, John sees Jesus coming in His kingdom. And so he testifies. And of course, John writes in verse 3, Blessed is he who reads... And those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Someone asked me last week, Rick, why do you want to move so slowly through Revelation? Why do you want to take so much time? Because blessed is he who reads. So I'm going to keep reading out loud, proclaiming the Revelation. But the blessing is for us together. He who reads, those who hear, those who heed. And then he says, for the time is near. Now... Before we leave the preamble to the prophecy, I promised you on Sunday we would talk about the time is near. How do you explain that? We already talked about that he's he's coming soon. John says these things must soon take place and people question that. How can he say that? Now it's 2,000 years later. And then he says right away the time is near. How can he say that? Soonness and nearness. Soonness and nearness. First of all, the things which must soon take place. We talked about Sunday how soon is literally translated quickly. In taxi, remember? You jump in the taxi, you're moving fast. It's going to happen quickly. When these things come down, they're going to happen quickly, rapidly. And if you're translating out must soon take place, jot this down if you're a note taker. Literally it reads must in quickliness come to pass. Must in quickliness come to pass. These things have to happen fast. Why? Because Jesus said they would. When did Jesus say they would? Matthew 24, He said, "...unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. They must happen quickly." They must happen quickly. When the end begins, when the tribulation period, that period spoken of from chapter 6 through chapter 19 in this book, when that tribulation comes down on planet Earth, Jesus made a promise. It's not going to go on and on and on and on forever. It's going to happen quickly. It must happen quickly. Why, Jesus? For the sake of the elect. Who's the elect? Israel's is the elect. I used to think it was the church. The word elect, eklektos, in the Greek, is chosen ones. And Jesus spoke of Israel for the sake of the elect. I mention that right here and now because Israel, the elect, the chosen, Israel is a major player in this end of days drama. If you don't understand the part that Israel plays, you won't understand the revelation. If you don't understand that God still has a heart for His people Israel, you will not understand the revelation. The reason why in chapter 7 people get so messed up about the 144,000 and who they are is that they think Israel is out of the picture. Israel's done for. So we've got to figure out someone else to apply the 144,000 to. And if you're going 144,000, what are you talking about? Jehovah's Witnesses? No. It's Israel. And Israel is a major player, and this is Israel in the tribulation for the sake of the elect, for the sake of my people Israel. This time must go by quickly. It must happen quickly. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, the prophet prophesied, Alas, for the day is great, there is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. And when Jeremiah prophesied, you know shortly after that, Jerusalem fell to Babylon. But this day of Jacob's distress could not have been the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon because Jeremiah prophesied, there is none like it. And the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 was worse than the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon in 586 B.C. There's none like it. The Holocaust was worse still. There's none like it. A time of distress for Jacob. What's going to happen here is when the tribulation gets underway... God is going to once again directly intervene with Israel as He did in days past. Supernaturally. And we'll start to see that again breaking loose in the Revelation. He's going to do it for their salvation. To, to grab their attention and as, as some have said, to wake up the Hebrew. Zechariah 13 verse 8 tells us it will come about in all the land declares the Lord that Two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them and I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. Now I believe the third part that comes through the fire will be surviving, believing, sealed Israel. Israel. And at the end of the tribulation, Israel that comes through will come through believing. Believing what? Believing Jesus as Messiah. As Paul writes in Romans 11.25, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed in this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. All Israel? The third part. They come through the fire. All surviving Israel will at that time be saved, claiming Jesus as Messiah. You'll see more of this. He says, As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And God's promise to Israel, and it's why verse 1 is so important, why these things must soon take place, is God promised it will go down in quickliness. It will happen fast. The time of Jacob's distress Is cut short. Now, John also wrote in verse 3, the time is near. The time is near. How do we figure that one? 1900 years have gone by since John wrote this. How can we say that? Well, the word near is engus in the Greek, and it means impending. You could also translate it approaching. The time is approaching. You might say the time is imminent. The time is impending. It's, it's coming down, man. It is fast approaching us. And to that, some quote Peter. They say, well, you can say the time was impending, and even though it's been 2,000 years, that's easy. Second Peter 3.8, with the Lord, one day is like 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years is like one day. It's like the 15-year-old that was praying. And he said, Lord, is that true? That to you, a thousand years is like a day? And surprised, he heard the Lord respond, Yes, my child. A teenager thought. So then would it also be true that to you, a thousand dollars is like a penny? The Lord said, Yes. Well, Lord, then can I just have a penny? And the Lord said, Sure. Give me a minute. God's chronology is different than our chronology. He is a God outside of time. And if you were to look at the whole of of human history, just look at the 6,000 years of human history. What's longer, 4,000 years or 2,000 years? I mean, the 4,000 that went by before Jesus came, and then you've got another 2,000. So the end is coming quickly when four-sixths of history has gone by. The end is coming quickly, and some will say that's what he's talking about. It's all about timing. And it is all about timing because the word near, impending, is coupled with the word time. Note that. He says the time is near. That's important too. He doesn't use the Greek word chronos, where we get chronology. That's what I expected when I looked this up. The chronos is near. Chronos is clock or calendar time. So it's the ticking of the minutes. You know, if you ever saw, remember the old show Twenty Four. Anybody see 24 back when it used to be? I love that show. Every minute goes by and you're stressed out the whole time. (laughs) But that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that the chronos is near, that that it's going to be happening any second now. And it's also not the word aura, which is another word in the Greek, which means hour. The word that he uses here is kairos, which means, get this, season. The season is impending. The time is near. The season is impending. The occasion of time is approaching. Keep your finger there and turn back in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. Luke, chapter 12. And I would just advise you, if you don't have a Bible, get one. Because you need to have one in your lap, in your hands. Especially as we go through Revelation, we're going to be all over the Scriptures. If you don't want to have one tonight, we've got Bibles back on the back bookshelf. Grab one, take it home, pass it out, leave it in someone's car, whatever you got to do. Luke chapter 12, verse 42, watch this. Jesus is speaking. Again, Luke 12, 42. And He's talking about readiness, and He's talking about the end. And, and there's something about the teachings of Jesus, and even the entire Word of God, that you'll know that He's always leaving hanging out there, that He could come at any time. Because whether you live now in 2018 or 1910 or the first century, God wants His people to be dressed in readiness. Living ready. doesn't matter if He's going to come tomorrow or not. He wants you to live that way because it changes you. So Jesus is talking about all this. And in verse 42 of Luke 12, the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward, whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Time is kairos. So the the wise steward, the faithful servant, is the one who continues to care for the master's servants in the right season. That's this season, by the way. That's the church age. That's where we're at right now, where where we've been, the season of time in which we are. And he says, blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Well, when's he going to come? In the Kairos. At the end of the season, he will arrive. Continue on says, truly, I say to you, verse 44, that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming, time is chronos. The slave has bad timing. He's got a time issue. He's thinking in terms of minutes and seconds rather than seasons. And so he says, my master's a long time in coming, and he begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that slave will come on a day he does not expect and at an hour, and that is aura, that he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. That is serious business. Why so serious? Because God loves His people. Because if there's one thing that God will not tolerate... It's people biting and devouring and beating each other in the church. He has no patience for that. That's the kind of servant that's going to be torn up when it all comes down. But Jesus, even here, uses the right words. The right servant has the right mindset. The unbelieving slave has the bad timing. He thinks that because Jesus hasn't arrived yet, according to his calendar, or his Fitbit, By the way, those of you who were here second service didn't get the treat that first service got when when I made the comment about the Western Caribbean and Siri on my watch answered me and said, What do you want to know about the Western Caribbean, Rick? Freaked me out. It's the beast! Anyway. (laughs) The unbelieving servant keeps thinking the time has to do with the ticking of the clock rather than the season that we're in. Wise is the follower of Jesus who knows the season, whose eyes are wide open and is aware of all that is going on, which is why when Jesus talks about the end, he talks in terms of seasons, Matthew 24, you know when the fig tree begins to blossom, that summer is near, the season, this season, this age, the church age, almost over. The time is fast coming to a close. I was sitting over here during worship. I love this time of year. I'm a fall, I'm a fall guy. <laughs> but I'm sitting over there and I, I love the autumn. I really do. And I was looking out the middle window. I don't know if some of you on this side saw it, but at the beginning of worship, one of the trees looked like it was on fire. And that always happens on this side of the island, this end of the island. The the sun hits the trees and it just turns them this brilliant orange. I used to watch the trees when I walked down to the barn in the fall in years past, and the end would just be lit up like that. Well, there was a tree right in the middle of the window that was bright and just beaming orange and lit up. And it reminded me, season's coming to a close. Time of the harvest is now. And Jesus said in Matthew 13, 30, In the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. The time is near. The kairos is near, he says. Go back to Revelation chapter 1. By the way, while you're turning there, there is a criticism that that some have of the literal futurist perspective of Revelation. We broke those down on Sunday. If you didn't hear it, go back and listen. Four approaches to Revelation, and we talked about the futurist approach, that is that most of what's in the book, at least from chapter 4 onward, is future to where we are right now. How far future? Not very. But it's out ahead of us. And one of the criticisms of that perspective, and it's the perspective that I subscribe to, it's just the literal perspective, God's Word being God's Word. But one of the criticisms is they say that future view robs the reader of the blessing. Really? I say the blessing is in the waiting. How much blessing is there in anticipation, in expectation? I remember as a child my parents telling me we were going to go to Disneyland on such and such a date. And if it was like two weeks out, I didn't sleep for two weeks. I was amped to the gills every morning, every evening. Is it the time? Is it the day? Are we going to go? I can't wait. As a child, and so my parents learned, they didn't tell me we were going to Disneyland until we were driving up the freeway to Disneyland. But that expectation and that excitement, I mean, doesn't that do something to you? There is joy in that. There's joy in anticipation. There's hope in expectation. The promise of his coming, man, looking forward to the King being here. That the, the King is near. I, I hope that does something to you. It, it does something to me. We start singing every single time. We start singing soon and very soon, and I just go, yes, <laughs> yes, Jesus. Soon and very soon, the King is near. That's the potency of prophecy. That's why God spoke through the prophets throughout history. Because always speaking these things, it gave us something to look forward to. It blessed us in that something's coming. God's about to do a new thing. He's about to bless. And we get excited and we look forward to it. And any time in all of history, any man or woman could be blessed in the Word of God. Because He always gives us something to look forward to. Well here at the end of the season all the blessings of all the prophecies throughout this book are coming to bear in the revelation. The thing I mentioned on Sunday 518 direct allusions if not quotations to the rest of the Bible. There are 2 or 3 that are very close to quotations although not exact quotes. But 518 places we can find in the Hebrew scriptures that are covered in the book of Revelation. It's marvelous. So like I said, we will be all over the Bible. Jesus was saying some things to people in a crowd. Luke chapter 12, again, earlier in the chapter. Luke 12, 27. He's speaking, and one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said, Blessed is the woman who bore you and the breast of which you nursed. I don't know why I just did that like Monty Python. (laughs) But she blurted out, and Jesus responded. He said, On the contrary... Blessed are those who hear the Word of God and observe it. Man, hear the Word of God. Hear the prophecies, the anticipation, the expectation, the hope that's embedded within. For my friends, the time is near. Verse 4, John to the seven churches. I know some of you thought, are we ever going to get out of the first three verses? John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. From Him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before His throne. And from Jesus Christ. Now pause right there. Grace and peace to you, John says, in, in wonderful first century church greeting. Grace and peace. We hear it from all of the apostles throughout the letters in the New Testament. Grace and peace. That is charis, the Greek word for greeting. And shalom, the Hebrew word for greeting. Because in Jesus there is neither Jew nor Greek. Slave nor free, male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. And so they would greet each other in that way. Karas and Shalom. Grace and peace. Bringing the two cultures together. Bringing the two words together in Jewish and Gentile salutations. And we see that the immediate recipients here are the seven churches that are in Asia. And we're going to find out a lot about these seven churches. And what these seven churches mean for the church but seven churches spread out this is western Turkey what we used to call Asia Minor there was Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea and they are the prime subjects of chapters 2 and 3 but the question comes up why, why just these seven? why does he specifically write and it's Jesus doing it he wants John to write, as we'll see further down, and send to these seven churches specifically. Remember, Jesus never speaks a careless word. He's always intentional. I want you to send this letter to these particular churches, and we will get into why. But some, some say, well, after his exile, and historically we believe this is accurate, after John was exiled on Patmos, wrote the Revelation, received the Revelation there, he was set free, And he settled in Ephesus. And then John began to make the postal route, to make the circulation between these seven churches. He would go from church to church to church on any given Sunday, and he would go there and speak and share and and move around like that. So some say, well, that's why John chose these seven churches. To which I respond, John didn't choose these seven churches. Jesus did. And again, it's for a very specific reason. You Bible students know seven is the number of completion in the Bible. It's not the, the whole number, if you will, but the complete number. And that tells us something, that the revelation is given to the seven churches. That is the complete church. This letter is for all of us. The churches there in Western Turkey. The church across 2,000 years. And that also means the church right here tonight. To you and to me The church here at the end of the age. Note also that this greeting is intricately triune in nature. You see Father, you see Spirit, and you see Son. All three here. When He says, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, that is God the Father, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. Seven? Let's just say the Holy Spirit and move on. And... From Jesus Christ, Father, Spirit, Son. Now, I love being in a church where many of you know exactly where I'm going with this, but some of you may not. So keep your finger here and turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Wow. Because John uses this phrase, and it does kind of spin people around when he says, the seven spirits who are before his throne. Seven Spirits. I remember the first time I read that. I do vividly because I was having trouble with the Trinity and now there's seven more Spirits I had to figure out. I don't know what he's talking about here. The seven Spirits before the throne. This is where we have the beautiful instruction and commentary of the rest of the Scriptures because we know exactly what the seven Spirits before the throne are. Who they are. They are the Holy Spirit. The one Spirit of God, referred to by John as the seven spirits before the throne. Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. He says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesse, David's father. So there's going to be a shoot that springs from the stem of Jesse, which is David. There's going to be a shoot, an offspring, if you will, of David and a branch from his roots, that's David's roots, will bear fruit. He says the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Now note this, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. That is this, this shoot from Jesse. He will not judge by what His eyes see, nor make a decision by what His ears hear, but with righteousness He will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And He will strike the earth with the rod of His mouth and with the breath of His lips He will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about His loins and faithfulness the belt about His waist. He is talking about Jesus. This is a prophecy of Messiah. And what Isaiah speaks here is that the... The Spirit of the Lord will be on him. And he describes here, just in verse 2, and if you just look at verse 2, he describes specifically the seven attributes of the Holy Spirit. Seven specifically. The seven spirits before the throne, the seven attributes of the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of the Lord. Now, if you're reading this, you might say, well, I only count six. Wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. You're telling me there's seven. Yeah, because you forgot the first one, which is the spirit of the Lord. What are you talking about? The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength and knowledge and fear of the Lord. There are seven that are listed here. How do you get that? Listen, Isaiah knew something as a good Jew. And John knew it as well. They knew that there was a representation of the Spirit of the Lord that rested first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. The golden lampstand, The seven-lamped stand. And if you were to see a picture of it, and many of you have. The golden menorah, if you will. It had a central shaft and a lamp on the top. And then it had branches that went straight out to the side. Two more here. Two more here, two more here for a total of seven. The seven spirits before His throne. Hey, the lampstand which represented the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord in the tabernacle and in the temple, where was the lampstand? It was before the mercy seat. It was in the holy place before the Holy of Holies, the seven spirits before the throne, John says. The Spirit of the Lord. And then he describes these attributes that branch out from the Spirit of the Lord like the branches of the lampstand with the central core, the central shaft and six branches out from it making seven. And there were seven total lamps. Oil lamps that sat on the top of this lampstand. So seven attributes. And one of the attributes, the primary attribute, the central shaft, if you will, is the Spirit of the Lord Himself. The Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Seven lamps. The seven spirits before the throne. But this is why it's so important. The central shaft. This is how ministry works. This is how our Christian lives work, my friends. There's always a central Shaft. There's always a core from which the attributes or the ministries branch out. A center from which the fruit goes. What I'm saying is, listen, who you are in Christ Jesus is the heart of anything you do. All the attributes, all the ministry, all the fruit in your life, it comes from a central source. It comes from who you are in Jesus from the core of who you are what we do in our spiritual lives oftentimes as christians is we get out on the branches to try to make things happen and we find ourselves out there trying to light up the world you know and we're focused on the branches and on branching out and on doing things for the lord and that's all well and good but then people start burning out the lamps start to go out what's happening we forgot the core You've got to focus on the core. Christ in you. The hope of glory. You want to do great things for the Lord? Love Him greatly. You want to serve Him and be fruitful in your life? Bearing fruit for the Lord as Jesus intends for you? You focus on Him. You're going to do the ministry. The more you love Jesus, the more you're going to branch out for Him. But then the branches, man, they just stay lit. They continue to grow. Jesus said, I'm going to ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper that He may be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. Jesus said, John fifteen 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches, and He who abides in Me and I in Him, He bears much fruit, for apart from Me you can do nothing. Center into Jesus. Focus on the core of your faith, and let Him produce the fruit. That's why, by the way, it's called the fruit of the Spirit—singular, because the fruit is of one Spirit—the seven spirits before the throne, the Spirit of the Lord. He is the producer of the fruit: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Did I get them all? Look it up, Galatians five twenty-two. He produces the fruit. Which is why Zechariah prophesied, Zechariah 4.6, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. So we focus in on the seven spirits before the throne, which is the Holy Spirit of the living God. But now, now back in Revelation, verse 5, John turns all of his attention, all of his focus, on Jesus Christ. You know what I love about that? It doesn't bother the Father or the Spirit in the least. Father is so pleased with the Son. The Spirit exists to glorify the Son, to bring glory to the Son. I've told you before, you know the Holy Spirit is present in the place where Jesus is honored and glorified. So John writes, "...and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth." The faithful witness is Jesus. Philip said to him in John 14:8, Lord, show us the Father. And it's enough for us. Jesus said, Have I been so long with you? And yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Jesus is the faithful witness of the Father. To know God is to know Jesus. To look at Jesus is to see God. He's the faithful witness. And John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained. God explained in Jesus the faithful witness. And by the way, the faithful witness, some of you need to hear this tonight. The faithful witness is faithful to you. Always faithful to you. The faithful witness said, I am with you. Always, to the very end of the age. He said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. That's faithfulness. Our culture doesn't understand faithfulness. Faithfulness is a thing that that people mess up and destroy and trample. Jesus is the faithful witness, testifying of God and faithful to you and to me. And He's the firstborn of the dead, John writes. I I love that phrase, firstborn of the dead. That's just weird. But it's weird in a marvelous way. He's not just the first one raised. Remember, there were others who were raised from the dead before Jesus. Jesus Himself raised three different people from the dead in the Gospel accounts, and probably more that we don't have account of. But He's the firstborn from the dead, because He's the first one who raised from the dead never to die again. All the others would die again, which is, you know, a bummer. Two funerals. Hey, Lazarus, you're raised. Going to die again, bro. I mean, how many of you have to go through two deaths? <laughs> I'd rather just die and go on home, be done with it, you know? Jesus is the firstborn never to die again. But he's the firstborn, not only eternally, but positionally. The firstborn of the dead. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep, first fruits never to die again, that's eternal. But the positional Christ, he is the firstborn, that is the heir and the authority over all of the household of God. Firstborn of the dead. Paul was preaching. Acts chapter 13, verse 32. And he says, We preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that He raised up Jesus as also is written to you in the second Psalm, verse 7. You are My Son. Today I have begotten you. Which we've been over as the vitally important, the begottenness of Jesus. He was the begotten Son, the only begotten Son in the resurrection. The firstborn From the dead. And I love how John mentions he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Domitian thought it was him. Nero, Vespasian, Titus, all of the emperors, they were the ruler of the kings of the earth. There were kings, you know, sprinkled throughout the known world. Rome was king over all, and the Caesar was king, ruler of the kings of the earth. No, no, John slides this one in. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. John's doing two things here. One is he's subtly challenging the authority of the Caesars. Domitian, you think you're king? Uh Uh-uh. In fact, within a year of John writing this, if indeed he wrote it in 95, Domitian was dead. He's no ruler of the kings of the earth. John's challenging that authority and he's confirming the coming reign of Jesus. Because there is a day coming quickly, my friends, coming soon and very soon, when Jesus will be the ruler of the kings of the earth. And among those kings, be some of you, Satan tried to get Jesus to acquiesce control early on. Matthew 4 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you'll fall down and worship me. Just make me your king, and you can be ruler of the kings of the earth. You can take this position right now. How's that a temptation? Jesus was already king, right? How is that a temptation? Well, it's a temptation because it would sidestep the cross hey, you could do this now and forget about all that mess that God told you you've got to walk through. No, no, you don't have to walk that bloody path. Just bow down to Me one time. It's like, yeah, just one time. Worship Me. And it's all yours. And Jesus said, go, Satan. For it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only because Jesus knew the promise of His coming had to go through the cross. Why? Why did He have to go through the cross? Well, John tells us. He suddenly bursts into a doxology at the latter part of verse 5. To Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood, and He made us to be a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Just a, a song of praise there. You'll see these throughout the Revelation. Sometimes you just can't help it The excitement is too great. The Word is too powerful. And you just got to praise God. And John says, To Him who loves us, present tense, and released us from our sins by His blood, errorist tense. At that point in time, He released us. But right now, He loves us. Then and now. He did what He did then because He loves us right now. And released us from our sins released us. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You guys are robots with that song, you know? You should be. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You know, I was wondering, do we get that out of Scripture? I mean, I know the, the, the idea we do, but is there a verse that literally says that the blood of Jesus washes us from our sins? And the answer is, yes, there is. And it's right here. Verse 5. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. But Rick, that doesn't say washes. Well, is anyone reading a King James translation? A couple of you are? Yeah? Old school? Right on. You're you're seeing it. No one else is seeing it. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. No, what it says is to him who loves us and washed us, washed away our sins by his blood. Well, my translation says released. And thus begins the big fight that splits the Bridge Christian Fellowship right down the middle. (laughs) The washers and the releasers. (laughs) Listen to this. Revelation 7.14 does tell us they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And the blood is cleansing. The blood does make us clean. Isaiah prophesied that. Though your sins be as crimson, they will be white as snow. It's, It's the blood that washes us clean. But one translation, the New American Standard Bible, or if you're using an NIV... Or maybe some other translations, you'll note that it says released. But if you're reading the King James translation or the New King James translation, it says washed. Well, which one is it? Because I'd really like the correct translation. And I would tell you this evening that both are really good. See, the NASB gets its translation from what's called the Novum Testamentum Grace. That's the manual, the Greek manuscripts that are translated that give us the New American Standard New Testament. The King James translation uses the Textus Receptus manuscripts. Both manuscripts are good. Both manuscripts interact very well. There are subtle and interesting differences between the two Greek manuscripts. And the translators have tried to work that out and figure it out over time. Here's the thing. In the New American Standard Bible, where we just read that He released us from our sins by His blood, the word there is luo. In the Greek, l-u-o, if we're transliterating, and it means to loose, to set free, to break, to break every chain, as we say. And I like that. Yes, His blood breaks the chains. His blood releases us. And so the NASB says, well, there's the word, luo, released. You know what the word is in the King James translation of the Textus Receptus? It's luo. L-O-U-O. As opposed to L-U-O. It's a one-letter difference. A one-letter difference. Someone goofed someone luoed when they should have luoed someone added the O or someone forgot the O and so we read this and we think oh that's terrible why would God allow such a thing why would God allow such a mistake such a glaring error between two different Greek manuscripts and here we are reading in our English and some are washed and some are released hey the blood of Jesus does both It washes us and it releases us from our sins. It cleanses us and it breaks every chain. And I thank God that we have both translations. Luo and Luo. Go either way, whatever you need for the particular day. Be washed, be released. Your sin is gone. And you are free from it. Skip over and look at chapter 5, verse 9. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Which tells us they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The blood that cleanses, the blood that releases. And they sang a new song. They who? Wait for it. Revelation chapter 12, skip over there. Revelation 12, verse 11. they overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony and they did not love their life even when faced with death. So here are the overcomers who overcame by the blood. They who? Who are we talking about? Wait for it. When we get to chapter 12, I'll tell you. And when we get to chapter 5, we'll look at who the theys are. But these people are somehow uh, released. They're washed These are overcomers by the blood in chapter 12. And these in chapter 5, they're purchased by the blood. It's the blood that washes and releases and purchases and makes God's people overcomers and priestly. Go back to chapter 1. And He made us, chapter 1, verse 6. He made us a kingdom. Now the phrase in italics there. He made us to be a kingdom. That's that's good. That's the implication there. He He made us into a kingdom. He made us to be a kingdom. Priests to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Are we a kingdom of priests right now? Yes and no. No, because... I'm sorry to say y'all don't look all that priestly tonight I mean Glenn's wearing flannel when did that start Glenn? <laughs> <laughs> Kathy Glenn told us today your, your initial reaction to the flannel I don't like that on you do <laughs> you know what? it's growing on her <laughs> flannel's good Flannel's good. My, uh, you good. Know, it's it's going to be fine flannel. White and clean. I'm sure of it. That's what we're going to have. Are we a kingdom of priests right now? No, actually we're not. We're priests in training. We're made to be priests. We are a royal priesthood. But, but we're not fully functioning as priests. Not yet. We will. The promise is there. Laid in throughout the revelation. But right now we are priests in training. Right now is not the kingdom. Understand that. And this is a big mistake that is made in the church. We're the kingdom now. No, we're not. We're preparing for the kingdom. We are citizens of the kingdom. We can think as part of the kingdom, but the kingdom is not now. And what's so wrong with that mentality, and it's pervasive in the church, my friends, kingdom now. Kingdom now. We got it. We've got this. We're going to present the kingdom to Jesus as a finished work by the sweat of our brow and the power of our blood. No. The king brings the kingdom. You don't have the kingdom until the king returns. I want to read you this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Uh, It's a little long, so just listen, but I I love the way Spurgeon writes, and he said, There are sanguine brethren who are looking forward to everything growing better and better and better until at the last this present age ripens into the millennium. They will not be able to sustain their hopes for Scripture give them no solid basis to rest upon. We who believe that there will be no millennial reign without the King and who expect no rule of righteousness except from the appearing of the righteous Lord are far nearer the mark. Apart from the second advent, the second coming of our Lord, the world is more likely to sink into pandemonium than to rise into a millennium. That's my quote of the week. The world is more likely to sink into pandemonium than to rise into a millennium. Kavanaugh and Ford. Pandemonium. What's going on right now in the leadership of our country is evil. It is from the devil. The contention, the meanness, the using of people. It, it, it's, I've never seen anything like it. I don't know that any of us have. At least in this lifetime. It is pandemonium. It is not millennium. And anyone who thinks this world is just getting better and better and better has not been living with their eyes open. He goes on and he says, "...a divine interposition seems to me the hope set before us in Scripture." And indeed, to be the only hope adequate to the situation. We look to the darkening down of things. And then he says, The state of mankind, however improved politically, ha, will yet grow worse and worse spiritually. The only place here where Spurgeon got it wrong is we grow worse spiritually, that is mankind, and it's getting worse politically. Politically. The one is affecting the other. The reason why we're seeing what's going on in Washington right now is not a political problem. It is a spiritual problem. It's a truth problem. It's a faith problem. It's a power problem because absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, Spurgeon ends by saying, we expect a reigning Christ on earth. That seems to us to be very plain and put so literally that we dare not spiritualize it. And I'll tell you what, if you're in a place of contention or struggle and you're wondering, how am I going to get through this? Or I don't know what the answers are. Or I can't see the truth because everything is so dark. You look to the King. The center shaft. The Spirit. You turn to Jesus and you put it in His hands. Be the problem in your life small or great, you look to the king and to the return of the king. And by the way, Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, he repeats this. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Now I might as well go ahead and tell you this. Them and they, in verse 10 of chapter 5, should be us and we. Because the first person personal pronoun you have made us to be a kingdom and priests to our God and we will reign upon the earth. And all the way toward the end of the book in Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, Blessed is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Look around. Even for all the flannel, you're going to reign. <laughs> You're going to rule with Jesus. We will be priests with him. We're going to have different functions in the kingdom. Ah, man, that brings so much joy and hope to me. Because as I'm getting older in my life, and I'm looking back, and I'm seeing most of the things that I wanted to do, I've done. So what's ahead of me? Well, not much. The empty nest, eventually, here. <laughs> which I told Cheryl last night, my nest is supposed to be empty right now. But what's ahead of me to look forward to? And those of you 10 years out from me, mid-60s, mid-70s, mid-80s, I'm sorry. What do you all have to look forward to? It's over. Don't be like Ferris Bueller at the end of the movie. It's over. Go home. What do you... Well, what else do you have to do? Do you know what you have to do? Rule and reign in the kingdom. Some of y'all are going to be over ten cities. Some over just one, but that's cool. You're still going to be over a city. We all know who you are. You are going to rule and reign. You will be positional in the government of Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom. The guarantee is in Scripture. We're going to rule. We're going to reign. We're going to reign alongside Jesus. So when He is called the ruler of the kings of the earth, some of those kings may be sitting right here tonight. That's cool. But we are going to be in His eternal government. How long is the rain? A thousand years. Well, how do you know it's a thousand years? Well, He only says six times in Revelation 20 that it's a thousand years. If you still want to dispute it, we'll talk about it when we get there in several years. Where is the rain going to happen? Right here. This sanctuary? No, Earth earth on earth the rain is an earthly millennial reign. it fulfills all of God's promises to the people of Israel that a kingdom will come through the line of David that a king will sit on the throne in Jerusalem that he will rule and reign that promise fulfilled and the Bible tells us for a thousand years now you might say okay but if we rule and reign with him for a thousand years I thought we were caught up with him in the rapture well of course And those of you who know your theology in this know we're coming back with Him. Look at verse 7. Behold, He is coming with the clouds. I think those clouds are not necessarily cumulus or nimbus. I think He's talking about the clouds of the saints. He's coming in the clouds. He's coming with the multitude who follow after Him. And this... Verse here, verse seven, is a direct allusion, if not a quote, of the prophet Daniel. Daniel said in Daniel seven thirteen, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. I'll let you work this out, but Jesus is both called the Ancient of Days, and he comes up to the Ancient of Days. <laughs> I love God. <laughs> He is so much bigger than my brain can comprehend. The Ancient of Days comes before the Ancient of Days. Why? Because Jesus said, Philip, have you been with me so long you don't know who I am? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So Daniel says, he's coming with the clouds. John now says, he's coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. Another nod, this time to the prophet Zechariah, who said, Zechariah 12.10... God through Zechariah said, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So again, father and son are interchangeable. Did you hear that? They will look on me whom they have pierced and then they will mourn for him that is me whom they have pierced, as one mourns for an only son. Now listen closely on this. John says, every eye will see him. Note that in verse 7. Every eye will see him. Every eye. So not only the house of David, as Zechariah promised, not only the inhabitants of Jerusalem, again as Zechariah said, no, every eye will see him. Matthew 24, 30, The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, Jesus said. And then all the tribes of earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And so John testifies, every eye is going to see Him. In the same way that John testified to all that he saw. Much better to be the one testifying to what we see by faith than the ones who don't testify until we see him coming in the clouds with great power and glory do you see jesus right now do you see him with eyes of faith do you trust and believe that what he did is true and what he said is true and who he claims to be is true blessed are those who believe without seeing him. but every eye every eye is going to see him That's interesting because that does not square with the biblical descriptions of the rapture where Christ's coming is unseen. Every eye will not see him when the church is harpazoed, caught up. In fact, the Bible refers to it as a thief in the night. He comes and he takes. He receives to himself. Some people are going to go. Matthew 24 40 There will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. And that word taken is very specific. Paralambano. He will be received unto. One's going to be received. The other one will be left. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with the dead in Christ in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and we will always be with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15.52 In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Instantaneously. In fact, the twinkling of an eye is immeasurable. It's not the blink of an eye. Because a blink you can measure. Blink. But a twinkle, it goes by so fast. I used to tell my kids, you know, when, when, when they were little, we get these, you know, little cap guns that are probably illegal today, I don't know, but we, we had cap guns. we go around shooting each other. It was great. You're dead. You know have the little cap guns and I I put the little holster on and I go, okay, Corey, Hannah, ready? Want to see Dad's quick draw? They go, yeah, Dad. And they watch and go, want to see it again? (laughs) (laughs) Twinkling of an eye. It will happen so quickly, so fast, and no one's going to see it. It's an unseen event. But in His glorious appearing, every eye will see Him. And this is one of the clear distinctions in the, in the second coming scenario of Christ, the literal interpretation of Scripture is that He comes and He receives His church unto Himself. That's the rapture. And then seven years of tribulation come down on earth. And then at the end of that time in His glorious appearing He returns and that's when every eye will see Him. Every eye, including those who pierced Him. Did you know that He said that? John says every eye will see Him. Zechariah said, they will look on Me whom they pierced. Which means those who pierced Him are going to look on Him, which is kind of weird because aren't they dead? doesn't mean they won't see His coming. you realize how huge this is? That every eye will see Him, which means those alive on the planet, every eye will see Him in His coming. And everyone who's gone before We'll see His coming. The question is, what's your perspective? Okay, your perspective can be from earth, seeing Him coming, absolutely terrified. Or, like Israel, mourning in the recognition of the crucified Messiah. Or you can be looking up through the dirt, oh no, absolutely terrified. Or your eyes can see Him from behind as He leads us forward as He brings us in the return. Every eye is going to see Him. That phrase, by the way, is not limited as far as those who pierced Him to the soldiers who drove the nails or to the Pharisees who drove the crowds. No, those who pierced Him. Our sin pierced Him. All of our sin pierced Him. So every eye will look upon Him who they pierced. Which does include us. I can imagine... Returning with Jesus and seeing Him as He rides on that steed and as, as His hands come up, seeing once again the nail scars. And knowing my sin did that. But what's marvelous about being a child of God is while I see the scars and I know my sin is the reason, I don't follow Him in guilt and shame, but in absolute thanksgiving for the sacrifice He was willing to make. Every eye will see Him and will see His coming. And John confirms it. He says, So it is to be, Amen. Which is literally, Nigh, Amen. Or, Yes, Amen. So it is to be. It's not even a sentence. It's one word there. Every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. Yes, Amen. This will happen. Yes, Amen. Amen. That's the way the early church used to say. It's an absolute done deal. Yes, amen. We just say amen. I think we should add the yes back in there. In Jesus' name, yes, amen. Because Paul said, As God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, was not yes and no, but yes. Yes in Him. For as many are the promises of God, in Him they are yes. Yes. Therefore, also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Nay, Amen. Yes. Amen. Jesus is one great big yes. 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 He is the yes. He is the amen to all who come to him. And by the way, that's a name he gives himself in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. He says, I am the Amen. I am the Amen. Verse 8, he also says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Who's speaking here? You guys just jump right ahead of me. I'm going to stop asking questions because you just ruin all my punchlines. Who is speaking here? The one... Who is, and who was, and who is to come. Well, we already established who that was, didn't we? Who, who did we establish who that was in the in the triune greeting? It's God the Father. I mean, Jesus. It's God the Father. Who is, and who was, and who is to come. The Almighty. Almighty God. But you all are right. And I believe John heard the voice that he knew very well, the voice of Jesus. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, and that is none other than Jesus Christ speaking. How do I know? We'll talk about it Sunday morning. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word to us. As this revelation unfolds, Lord, I pray that the prophecies bring out the expectation of hope, the anticipation of joy. I ask, Lord, that You will give us more and more enthusiasm for the coming of Jesus. And I ask this, Father, not for silly enthusiasm's sake, but because I know, I think we all do, that anticipation changes us. That those who have this hope in themselves, purify themselves just as He is pure. Lord, that we can't live. We can't live our lives however we want. When we're anticipating the coming of Jesus, we live with the expectation. We live sanctified. We live looking to His coming. And Lord, I pray for everyone here tonight that we will none of us be among those who mourn at His coming. That we look on Him who was pierced for our sins, who we received as Lord and Savior. And we look on Him as those who are forgiven, who are absolutely in love with our Savior. I pray that none will look on Him with dread or fear. But then among us here tonight will be a group of people who look on Him with eyes of faith. Faith now for the joy that is set before us. I'm reminded, Lord, it was for the joy set before You that You endured the cross, scorning its shame, and You sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Lord, I ask You tonight, are You standing up? Are You leaning in? Because as I read these things, I get the feeling that You are anticipating Your coming more than we are. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We will do this every week as we go through the Revelation. If you have never received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I give you the opportunity to do that right now. To come forward as we sing together, to pray, to receive the Lordship. Receiving, as Les likes to say, is a big deal. you just got to receive Him. Allow Him to be the ruler of your life. Invite Him in tonight. Begin with simple faith. And watch Him go to work. He is just yes. And if you want to say yes to Jesus tonight, if you want to be baptized, man, we'll do that right now. Or we'll do it Sunday or whenever. So we're going to stand, we're going to sing and worship with the song together, and if you want Jesus, if you need Jesus, if you want to give Him your life, then come on forward. Les will be over here, I'll be on this side. We're ready to receive you and pray with you. Let's stand and sing.